Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, I had on Brian DeZosa. Brian is the head of marketing at Berkshire Gray, where he is focused on enabling companies to transform how they deliver value to their customers with AI-powered robotic solutions in e-commerce and supply chain. Prior to Berkshire Gray, Brian held a number of product marketing leadership positions at companies such as Microsoft and Grammarly. He's a former product manager. We chatted a little bit about that transition. We also did a deep dive on principles and how principles are used to make better decisions. I really enjoyed my time with Brian and I'm sure you all will as well. All right, Brian, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for having me, Devin. So where do we find you today? Where are you based out of? So I am based out of the greater Boston area. Uh, We're here in the Bedford, Mass uh, town, uh, just uh, about what, 20, 30 minutes outside of Boston. Nice. Lovely. Well, let's start with how you got to where you are today. And we'll obviously chat about your current role and some past, but why don't you give us sort of an intro into how you fell into tech and how you fell in love with product marketing? Yeah. uh, So tech and me, you know, it wasn't something that uh, I grew up thinking I was going to or want to get into. Uh, Obviously, tech has evolved in the the many decades uh, prior um, but uh, I initially thought after grad school, I wanted to get into consulting. Uh, I enjoyed, you know, doing project work. I enjoyed traveling and uh, working on different problems and different companies, etc. And so um, I really thought consulting was going to be my thing. And uh, I did it for a year. And uh, I just happened to have clients in the tech space, which got me introduced to tech. And um, I, I soon realized that as much as I enjoyed consulting, uh, I uh, what I didn't enjoy was really being able to see the uh, the fruits of the of that labor, right? So when you are a consultant, you typically you know give a recommendation, you move on to your next project. So uh, being able to see that end to end execution was something I was missing, and uh, and yeah. So uh, but but one thing I did take away from consulting was I love tech. I love the the potential with what uh, you know technology can be used and. Uh, applied in different scenarios and uh, how different companies and different customers and consumers were using technology really to just, you know, create a better way of life and, um, and, and be more productive and so on. And so I realized that tech was a space that I wanted to get into um, and really explore it. And product marketing also, you know, I, I started off as a product manager when I was at, uh, uh, at Microsoft. That was my first gig into tech is with Microsoft and uh, I did that for three years, worked really closely with product marketers as a product manager. Um, and, uh, you know, as, as much as I was enjoying product management, I said, oh, you know, I, I, I took marketing courses when I was in uh, uh, doing my MBA. And so uh, I started seeing uh, a lot of cool opportunities where I could stretch that muscle quite a bit. 
Um, and so I switched, I switched, um, you know, different sides of the aisle, really. I switched from a product manager to a product marketing manager while I was at Microsoft. And uh, one can say the rest was history from there. It's interesting. I'm, I'm meeting and speaking with more and more folks that have come from either the product or engineering side and have moved over into product marketing. What exactly about product marketing was attractive to you as a, uh, you know, as you were a product manager? So I, I really, so product marketing, at least back when I joined, I think it was kind of coming uh, into a, a true definition of what product marketing was. And uh, what I really enjoyed about it was the fact that it was like this connective fabric, I will say, uh, across the three really core disciplines to any business, right? The product, sales, and the marketing function. And, um, you know, I initially as a product manager, uh, when I just started off, I was um, seeing that there was this gap when I worked with uh, internal stakeholders to be like, okay, but who is figuring out how we're going to launch it? Uh, well, I own the product side of things. Someone else owns the sales, but who bridges that gap, for example, right? Yeah. And um, just seeing that gap widen and widen and the complexity of customers and users and the complexity of products and how they are built and launched, um, that's that's really what got me into uh, like got me interested in product marketing, and uh, it was my first introduction into it as a product manager, as I said. And so, uh, being able to see and drive that value as being the connective fabric, driving you know product strategy from an inside out perspective to more like an outside in perspective, uh, I felt was was super super valuable. Um, and, and ever since then, I've just seen the, and, and you've seen it too, obviously, Devin, you know, the, the function really surge in many different directions uh, today and different types of flavors in different companies. So, so the value is definitely there and it's, it continues to grow. Yeah, absolutely. I love being the connective tissue and I think that's exactly what product marketing does. You have to be creative, like a marketing or brand team. You have to have, you know, the business acumen of a, of a product manager and you also have to understand the product pretty, you know, technically not at the same level as an engineer, but you need to be able to demo and, and uh, speak to it at a, at a very intimate level. Mm-hmm. So I personally love that as well. And yeah, definitely as the product marketing role in itself has really found a footing in the last five or so years when I first started, you know, we were much more focused on enablement and sales and supporting sales organizations and, I think the strategy component to product marketing is finally really being recognized and valued the way it should be. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know you've held a number of product marketing leadership roles. You were at Microsoft. I think that's where you transitioned from product into product marketing. Um, you're head of product marketing at Grammarly, and now you're uh, head of marketing for Berkshire Gray. So I would love to hear a little bit about Berkshire Gray. I've done some research, but can you tell us sort of what your products are, what your, um, yeah, what, what you sell there? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Berkshire Gray, we are an, uh, AI robotics, uh, startup, uh, firm that recently we went public, or uh, I think almost a year ago now, a little over a year ago. And, uh, we build essentially robots for all things, uh, uh, order fulfillment and supply chain. So you can think about when you buy something online, you know, all the way from uh, how it gets processed at a at a distribution facility, a fulfillment center, and it reaches your door, 
that whole process is pretty complex. And so it, it can also be super labor intensive. And um, so Berkshire Gray, you know, we uh, the robots we build are essentially in place to uh, what I'll say augment uh, human intervention. And what that means is, you know, sometimes robotics gets a bad rap, I guess, for, you know, are you replacing uh, jobs and so on. And, you know, for us, we think uh, nothing could be farther from the truth in some ways, because uh, a lot of the tasks that robots do do and can do are pretty repetitive and um, almost, um, you know, highly tedious and and boring, really, just to say it plainly. And so being able to free up human labor to up-level themselves and focus on more strategic tasks or more supervisory roles and so on, uh, that's what we've seen uh, some of our customers really uh, use robots for, is to get people out of dangerous environments and um, just kind of build sort of a career path for them out of the well, out of doing mundane tasks. So, yeah, so in a nutshell, uh, uh, anything when it comes to supply chain, anything when it comes to retail, e-commerce, packages, et cetera, uh, package and logistics handling uh, industries, uh, we build robots for. And, um, you know, it is it is a pretty exciting space and uh, a growing space, uh, but, uh, you know, one which I continue to learn more uh, more of every day. Yeah, you're definitely working in a really exciting area of the economy. There's no doubt about that. It's interesting you were mentioning um, you know, how you're an augmentation versus a labor replacement. Um, it got me thinking a little bit about your role at Grammarly. I mean, in some sense, Grammarly is also that, right? It's helping you write more effectively. It's not replacing the writer. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's exactly it, actually. That's because what happens is that um, when you have people working in roles that don't have uh, some sort of a career path or, you know, super mundane or, or whatnot, uh, you tend to see higher attrition in, in those kinds of roles. And that's why, uh, you know, one can argue that's one of the many reasons why there's this acute labor shortage in the industry right now. Uh, this There are so many jobs open, but there are, you know, they, re, they continue to be open. There are so many people looking for jobs. Um, and it's a big part of that. Uh, you know, people want to feel appreciated. They want to feel like they're doing or at least doing something that's that has some uh, potential insight, you know. And uh, so for us, uh, we, we are pretty committed to that mission. So the narrative around not being uh, a labor displacer Okay. Is that something that's more that you're trying to drive that narrative in market? Or is that also the messaging that your buyers want to hear? I'm curious, like, are there buyers out there that actually are looking for ultimate efficiencies and actually might want that? And yet, you know, you can't market it that way. Yeah, it's a great question. It's I would say it's a little bit of both. Um, I mean, the you know, I'm, I'm going to make a general assumption here, but at least the customers that we work with, um, you know, where we've, we've, at least I've not heard ever since I've been here of a customer saying, hey, I want to get rid of these people and put a robot there. I've I've not heard that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people instead are like, um, uh, hey, you know, we want to grow throughput or, uh, we, you know, we're not finding the right skilled labor for this, uh, for these tasks or these roles, or, you know, we are, having issues with attrition. So those are the kinds of uh, challenges we hear. And, 
we're given the opportunity to create solutions and build products that uh, that can help these sorts of businesses alleviate from from those areas. Um, but you know, for us, we yes, we as a product marketer, uh, I, I do talk about uh, you know the ability to uh, build greater labor efficiencies or augment your labor pool in some way and form. Um, because it's it's almost like if you don't call it out, it's like the big you know the the white elephant in the room, right? Right. It's like oh, why haven't you even addressed that as part of your <laughs> marketing campaign and such? Um, so it's important to address it. I don't think any anyone should feel shy about talking about it. And uh, right. at the same time, uh, we want to be very transparent about it, which is you know we are in the business to help people uh, do better jobs, really, in some ways, and and ensure that. Uh, businesses scale efficiently, uh, they scale throughput, they scale productivity, uh, and that uh, you know, all, their supply chains are pretty robust regardless. Yeah, well, what an interesting set of problems to deal with. I'm sure your life as a, a marketer over there doesn't doesn't get boring. Mm-hmm. So we're going to pivot a bit. So when I was doing research before uh, our call, I love to see that you publicly documented both personal and professional principles. So I'm going to quickly read the principles that you've documented and I'll start with professional. You have three for each. So three professional principles, pursue customers first, not competitors. Only uh, clarity delivers, not complexity. Teams win, not individuals. Those are your professional. Now I'm going to move on to your personal principles. Faith inspires, culture aspires. Family first, then work. Leaders are bred, not born. So I'd love to hear from your words why you think it's important to do this sort of principle documentation and why you went through the process of of doing this. Yeah, um, I, I must confess that, Devin, um, you know, I, I didn't have principles up until like a couple of years ago. And that's weird to say it in those many words. <laughs> uh, but uh, I've realized that uh, when, you know, when I took some time to self-reflect and document these principles, um, the driving force for doing so was uh, that I I noticed myself, you know, having some sort of a pattern when it came to dealing with challenges uh, at work, you know, running teams, right, or hiring and uh, understanding people. Um, And so I feel that everyone, whether you know of it or not, you have, there are some principles you follow based off of your values, based off of your, you know, your, your background and so on. Um, and so for me, being able to document it in this way, uh, just kind of put it on paper, really, and help me self-clarify uh, what are the principles that uh, I I operate off of. Uh, and the way it has helped me is really, you know, keep it uh, keep it front and center of my mind, especially when I go through complex challenges and situations. And uh, just kind of, you know, always be able to hit reset to be like, okay, you know, what am I operating off of? And does it match these principles or not? Um, but yeah, so, you know, not, not, nothing really super scientific, I would say, but it's just taking some time to figure out what they are and uh, what's my MO really. Well, we definitely see eye to eye on this. I believe every company and I do believe every person for that matter 
uh, should take the time to sit down and document principles. And to your point, everyone does operate off of principles. I think just recognizing what yours are and, um, and emphasizing them is, is important. And from a company perspective, it absolutely can serve as the foundation that defines the future of the company. That's what I believe. So now it's my turn. <laughs> I'm going to talk about four principles that I established, uh, actually three of which I established when I created and launched Fluvio. And then we added a fourth as a team um, about a year ago. So I'm going to read those real quick. Speed matters. Speed beats perfection, move fast, deliver, and adjust. Number two, accountability drives progress. Mistakes and problems can be managed to produce progress, embrace responsibility, and be an owner. Three, positivity rules. Perception leads to reality. Understand there is no ceiling. Positivity drives change and invigorates. Negativity slows momentum. And then the fourth, the most recent addition, is determination is the difference. Determination and perseverance are prerequisites to success. Never underestimate their impact. I did this for a couple of reasons. One, uh, I was at Amazon, and Amazon has a number of leadership principles. Uh, key decisions are are utilize or key decisions are based on some of these principles. Um, you have to allude to them in in doc reviews and doc reviews and strategy reviews with leadership. So, sort of was baked into my work. And then I also read. Ray Dalio's book, I think it's just called Principles, which is a really good read and talks about how important principles are. And for us as a company, we really do use these principles to act like a compass. Um, this is helpful for employee hiring, uh, for, for onboarding and employee development. And it really guides each client engagement and work product we produce. So I think, again, just documenting these things has been hugely helpful. And then I also have documented leadership principles for myself that I've made available to everyone on my team. And I grade myself on these things quarterly. So I have to go back to that doc that I've created. I look at you know each one of these, I think there's 12, and I give myself a letter grade and hold myself accountable. Um, so it was just, anyway, I was really interested to hear your thoughts on that. And I loved how you publicly documented them. I think it was on your LinkedIn bio. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in a similar vein here, I've always been fascinated with how different leaders make decisions. Sounds like you're, um, you know, very thoughtful about areas like this. Obviously principles is, is um, similar, relates to making decisions. So What's the process you go through when you make a decision? Do you do you have a defined process? He, so, and it's a great follow up question to the to the principles uh, that that you that you talked about as well, Devin, uh, because I, I do believe that um, you know the principles like principles are the foundation of any uh, decision making process, and, and that's why I strongly believe that you know, whether people know it or not, you, you have some principles, right? And you just need to understand what they are and, and, and make sure you have you're at peace with them. Um, so for me, when I, for me, decision-making is uh, usually based off of a lot of listening up front uh, and then asking questions, uh, almost like uh, uh, I fall into the Socratic method <laughs> of, yeah. uh, of of deducing an an argument or an issue or a problem in that regard, and uh, I've noticed that um, the more you know initially, like I used to uh, be very 
uh, I would say very impulsive. Uh, when I say in the beginning, meaning in the beginning of my career, uh, I would try to fix a problem with, uh, with, with just the first sight of uh, uh, what the problem was, you know, and uh, I learned the hard way that that's uh, not always very effective. And um, so for me, you know, being able to force myself to ask questions or ask a lot of questions, even questions which I thought like, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, the answer to that, but no, I would ask it. And, uh, you know, you just tend to get so many different perspectives on, on a problem or, uh, or a topic needing a decision that uh, it just puts you into a mode of uh, wanting to learn more about what's going on versus trying to uh, bring your pride or ego in the situation being like, oh, I need to have a decision. Otherwise, people will think I'm stupid, you know. Um, so, uh, I ask a lot of questions up front, um, uh, and, uh, I make it a point to ensure that I, uh, that, you know, to whom am I asking those questions? Um, uh, you know, understanding, uh, if the people who I will get those answers from are, uh, have the credibility and, uh, and, the, at least the knowledge or, or the, the, the knowledge enough to be able to point me in the right direction. Um, and this kind of what I'll what I'll call data gathering process or information gathering process really is uh, is what helps me come up with uh, options, right? Of uh, you, then you start getting into simulation, right? Like you do this quick simulation in your in your mind around okay, if I if I if we do this or if I do this, uh, that might happen, that might happen, and that might happen. Am I happy with that? Eh, not really. Or is it is it for the greater good? No, not really. Um, so then it's a lot of simulating, right? It's a lot of just figuring out what are the alternatives, what are pros of cons and pros and cons of each alternative, um, and then uh, hopefully settling on something that uh, uh, that makes sense and is uh, the, the best alternative out there. Um, not necessarily the perfect one, but at least the best and the right one. Um, but uh, you know that. that what I just said might not be super, like again, unique, right? But the one thing I want to make sure people understand, or listeners, or your listeners understand, is that um, you know, try try to make a never really have the pride or the ego thinking that your decision is going to be the right one, no matter how much effort you put into it. Uh, being able to know that uh, you can make mistakes and. Uh, it's not a personal failure, but more so, uh, you know, uh, you probably missed a data point or misinterpreted a data point that led you to make a decision that didn't go down the right way. But just being able to have the humility to know that uh, whatever you decide might not still be the right decision and you might make mistakes, I feel that keeps you from analysis paralysis. Yeah, um, which is you know just spinning right. And again, I, don't get me wrong, I you know, everything in moderation, including moderation, right? So it's like <laughs> being able to take the take enough time to understand, but not get so stuck into on trying to understand everything um, for fear of uh, making the wrong decision. Now, obviously, what I'm just saying um, uh, would be magnitudes not applicable to, say, if you're a surgeon or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, hopefully you it's take subjective, yeah. that. Yep. But you, you get the idea. It's, you know, being able to find your 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 equilibrium when it comes to spending time on the problem versus actually working on a problem and deciding for the problem is important. Yeah, and understanding when it's okay if you get it wrong. I mean, there are there are some circumstances where it's it's not, um, mm -hmm. but most of the time it's okay to get something wrong so you can move and and you can move fast and adjust. Uh, listening that's such an important one. It does seem super intuitive, but 
a lot of people and myself included probably need to do better at that. It reminds me of, again, um, thinking back on, on Amazon, when you have these big doc reviews with leadership, the leader in the room is always going to be the last one in the room to speak. So you sit down, you re in this case at Amazon, you read, you know, a six page doc, you go through FAQs, the, um, the author of the doc will sort of go through each section by section and ask if there's questions or sort of uh, articulate their, their point of view. And at the very end, when essentially these decisions have already been made, um, you'll get the perspective of the leader in the room that ultimately sort of makes the, the, the decision or signs off on the decision. Um, definitely a good lesson to just consume and listen to the right folks. Make sure you have the right context and then also move fast and um, don't be too scared to make a decision. Mm -hmm. So given your experience in both B2B, so we talked about, you know, you worked at Microsoft and now at Berkshire Gray and B2B2C at Grammarly, I'd love to hear your perspective on how product marketing differs between those two types of businesses. Yeah, um, so you know, at uh, I, I will say, so while I was at Grammarly, uh, I was head of product marketing uh, for our, uh, our our well, essentially our, our new product that we came out with a B two B product called Grammarly Business, um, and uh, in many ways the impact of knowing that what you are going to put out there is not only going to help is not only for the business that's buying your product but for their end consumer um, I will say your line of sight uh, has to be far enough into the into your customer's customer so that you understand what's important for them to be successful and hence the business to be successful and hence what you know you can do in that regard to deliver that that success. Um, and, uh, you know, some days, uh, sometimes folks can think like, oh, B2B marketing can get quite drab and it's all about, you know, deal cycles and ACV or, or angry, average contract values and, uh, you know, medic <laughs> formulas and all that kind of things. Uh, but, uh, what I'll say is the, the key differences between the two is when you think of B2B, you are essentially thinking about a lot of business metrics, a lot of business uh, factors that go into the purchasing uh, behavior of the decision maker, you know, or signing the check to buy your product or not. Uh, but when you think about it in the context of a B2B2C, um, you are not only thinking about that decision maker, but you are also thinking about what is the decision maker trying to accomplish uh, from the from their own end consumers, right? Um, so to give you an example, um, when I was at Grammarly, we were thinking about uh, uh, you know marketing to customer support functions uh, that could use Grammarly Business to essentially write better English, right? And um, what was important for us to understand is like initially we thought, okay, you know, let's talk about positioning the product in a way that you can help your customer support representatives write better English. Okay, great. Awesome. You know, that's very similar to what we tell, uh, what we told our, our students or our users, students as such, uh, that you can have better polished writing and get better grades. Um, but then we realized that we weren't having enough line of sight deep into the customer's customer. And so what that means is, 
that to that customer, to that customer support representative, what they are looking for is to, to either retain a customer, acquire a customer, uh, ensure that you know they have great CSAT scores, the customer leaves the chat knowing that their problem is, is resolved, and uh, basically representing the company really well. Now, when you think of it in that way, what you what, what we then started talking about was, hey, you know, a Grammarly business can help you uh, win more win more users, or Grammarly business can help you retain more customers. And that was like, wait, how is like a gram you know you know grammar essentially known as a grammar checker uh, able to help me retain more customers? And now you develop that interest. Like, wait, you're talking my language, you're talking my right. goal. And um, that was the big difference when you know from when we thinking when we think of B two B versus B two B two C, is essentially the, again the principles are the same. You're trying to ensure that your customers' goals are met through your solution, um, but in the context of B two B two C, that line of sight goes far beyond the your your immediate customer. It goes right. to the customer's customer. Definitely adds some complexity. Exactly, and that's really where uh, you know that was like a big big mindset shift for me when I was running the team there. That's fascinating. And what about the difference between physical hardware products versus software? How do you see those two things differing in terms of product marketing and fundamentals? Yeah, yeah. So um, the yeah. So here, so when I joined Berkshire Gray, I uh, you know this was my first foray into a hardware plus software play, right? And it, because throughout my career, I've I've been in SaaS and PaaS uh, products. Um, so when you think about hardware and software, now you're not selling software as a standalone product, right? You're selling software as the quote unquote secret sauce to your hardware. And so when you think about robotics, um, and this is how we position our products too, uh, you know, we build great robots, right? The, like the physicality of it, that it can carry certain weights. It can work in harsh environments. It can, you know, be really sturdy and durable and modular, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, great. Awesome. Like, you know, that those are great core differentiators. But uh, what really differentiates our product is the, uh, you know, the software that we write to make these products or these robots intelligent is what makes us pulls, uh, keeps us pulls apart from, you know, alternatives or competitors in that regard, right? So software no longer is the, uh, you know, as compared to the priors when I did software marketing, so to speak, uh, I would talk about, um, you know, general features of the software and the ability to, uh, you know, be installed really quickly and uh, servicing, etc. cetera, um, which in some ways is still true here, but not so much so as a standalone product, but more so as software as a whole is now a differentiating feature of the product, which is right. the robot. Um, so that that you, you so when you think of hardware and software, you kind of almost have to up level yourself to be like, hey, I'm not just selling software; I'm selling a hardware plus software component. And so, how do these two uh, pieces of the equation come together, and what value does it equate to? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so you know, it, it's it's really fascinating, but. Um, it's interesting. Like software is is uh, considered secret sauce, and uh, when it comes to robotics, in many places. Yeah, we did some work a couple of years ago with um, an access control sort of like building access company. Um, so digitizing keys essentially for shared workspaces, um, and we went through a, an exercise that 
inevitably sort of landed us in that outcome, which is it's it's both a hardware and software play, and it's they're stronger together, and that became a, a core differentiator for them because they were going against alternatives. I wouldn't even say competitors, but alternatives that were hardware only or software only, and there was this uniqueness where they focused on both, um, and how it you know you you have a better solution when when you're incorporating both software and, and hardware and you're not dependent on third-party integrations. That kind of reminds me of that. And you can also think about the positioning against, or, or uh, Apple against um, Android, you know, iPhones, or everything Apple historically has been um, both hardware and software and mm-hmm. almost being this um, enclosed box versus Android and Google being in this ecosystem. And, um, you know, you sell the hardware and it has to integrate with everything, which inevitably there's some churn with that. Um, but just different ways to position companies, they both can be effective. So both of us have had to build and lead teams pre-COVID and during COVID. So obviously COVID has, has changed um, business in many respects, but how has building a team and acquiring talent changed since 2020 yeah i would say it's in many ways it's changed for the better um you know the obvious one is that now you you know provided time zones make sense and you have enough collaboration etc and you know because of the time zone situation uh your talent pools have really exploded uh, across the country sometimes even across the world right and uh, being able to build a team purely off of skill and not necessarily access, um, like physical access, uh, I think has really changed the industry and like in many industries for that matter. Um, I remember in the past, you know, when we were, when I would hire, it would be around, um, I would say sometimes, you know, arguably work from home or remote would be almost seen as like a disadvantage, right? Absolutely. Uh, And uh, you would then almost have to look at physical access or or proximity uh, to be the the, the key hiring decision uh, after, (laughs) you know, skills and other things. But now I'm so glad to see that that's almost like out the door. Um, It's not the case for many companies now. Uh, And I hope it stays that way. I do see some, you know, I I read in the news, some folks going back to return to office, which is fine. I mean, even hybrid is fine. It's just, you don't want proximity to be uh, the great divider of uh, hiring a skilled person to hiring an almost skilled person, you know? Yeah, I mean, Um, it's kind of insane when you think about it. You'd have to circle the map of where your offices are and have, I don't know, 100 mile radius and mm-hmm. that's the pool of talent and now i multiply that times you know hundreds of a hundred thousand miles it's just uh it's an insane difference yeah and for and you know it's it's important for companies to know that uh, uh you are it, it's a big part of the work-life harmony i remember back in microsoft you know satya nadella our ceo was uh he came up with this amazing, I think, yeah, if I remember correctly, it was him that came up with this concept of work-life harmony and not necessarily work-life balance. Right. And, um, you know, I, I kind of stuck with it because I feel like as long as you can work in an environment and knowing that uh, 
you know, you, you have your personal life in order, or at least, uh, you know, your personal life is still around you, I guess. Um, it, it just breeds more creativity, breeds more collaboration, I would say also, breeds more, you know, just productivity in general. Um so yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I hope I hope the trend is here to stick. I hope it's not just a trend, um, and and you know companies see the light and just stay stay hybrid, stay remote, or, or or be able to offer that in the long term. I hope so too. And yeah, work. Yeah, I love the phrase the 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 difference between work life balance um, because work life balance is you're saying one or the other um, mm-hmm. versus an integration of the two, which seems to be a better future. And that's how we operate. So, you know, we have, for example, one of our principals uh, every day at something like 3 p.m. is is not able to work because she's going to go pick her kids up from school. And that's just baked into her schedule. Mm-hmm. And that's totally fine. Like, why would that not be fine? If work is getting done and clients are happy and we're moving forward at the pace we should be, then, then great. Um, I, too, hope that it's not a trend. I don't think it is based on what we're seeing. Um, I actually thought about this today. We kicked off with a new client and everyone in that room was in their home. And it got me thinking, I haven't had a kickoff yet where everyone's in an office and we're the only ones remote. So mm-hmm. let's hope that holds. So we talked obviously about building a team and how you know COVID has allowed for you to sort of uh, elongate the um, the opportunity in terms of what, t- what talent's available to hire, what are you looking for when you're trying to hire for product marketing? Are there certain characteristics that you believe make for a great product marketer? Uh, I will say that uh, this might sound very cliched, but just being able to learn with humility, you know, um, that is like the, I would say the, the core characteristic uh, for any product marketer is that because you are that connective fabric we talked about a earlier, you have to learn other people's priorities and understand how to influence those priorities in a, in a respectable way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it does not mean being a pushover. It does not mean being a kind of like an agency model. You know, I will, uh, you know, do whatever people tell me to do. I will launch whatever people tell me to launch and that kind of a thing. But um, I will say there's there's plenty to be said for humility when it comes to learning that people just understand you're not there to uh, dictate, but you are there to help them be successful and most importantly, help the product be successful, right? Uh, you are that outside in, uh, you know, person when it comes to understanding the market, the customer and, and bringing those needs in inside the company. So learning is a big one. I will say a, a close second is um, uh, and, and this might be very applicable only to tech, but just understanding how technology works, right? And and you don't have to be a program. A lot of time I get this question: that, "Oh, Brian, you were product manager. Now you're in product marketing, or you know, so do I have to be a product manager? Do I have to learn program? Do I have to be developed?" I'm like, no, you don't have to. I'm not a programmer. I, I didn't get a CS degree. I, I I I have a science and math degree, but that doesn't mean like you have to. Uh, no coding to be able to be a good product marketer in tech. I think what you need to have is uh, an aptitude to understand how products are built, uh, how products work, uh, what makes them different from others. Like these are all things that 
if you have an interest in the area that you will just naturally want to I was to get about into. to say, if you're interested in, in, in products and how they function and in tech, you're, you're right. going to learn that. Yeah. And if you're struggling with it, guess what? You know, <laughs> you, you, you probably are not in the right space. It's fine. You know, you get, you'll get to know it sooner than later. Um, so yeah, so aptitude to, for technology, being able to understand how how stuff works is important, and uh, and the last one I will say is, um, and this is a pretty important one, which is just understanding how to sell. And again, mm. like how I said before, you don't have to have been in sales, you don't have to have been an account executive or whatnot, but how but understanding the selling motion, and every company is different. Every company has a different selling motion. And most times you will have to understand and learn how you know how companies sell, how your how your company sells, and um, because what that does is it helps you build trust with your uh, if if you are a sales driven organization with your sales teams, if you are a growth or product driven organization with your growth teams. Uh, but either way, being able, how like how is your value being communicated and um, how can you influence that is is important. Uh, so yeah, yeah, to some I, extent, everyone's a salesperson. <laughs> Right, exactly. You, I mean, think about the last time you 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 know looked for a job, right? How did you sell yourself? So right. it's that it's that kind of thing which you just need to bring into your into your trait versus just for when you think you're going to get into that career or not. Right. Well, I know you're a big believer in learning and development, and so I'd love to know what or who has had the biggest influence on you, and that could be personally or professionally or both. Uh, yeah, uh, it's this is probably the easiest question <laughs> of the lot. Um, so for me, uh, you know, going back to one of my principles, faith uh, faith inspires, and I for for me, a key factor that has led me to have these principles has just been you know uh, my belief in uh, in Jesus Christ and uh, uh, being able to see you know how he has helped me understand the value of values uh, it was pretty pinnacle. Uh, I will say mid, I will say when I was, you know, mid career in a way, uh, because I just started feeling this uh, notion that I always had to look for the next best, the next best thing. Um, it was all about the destination and not the journey. And, uh, you know, as I, as I learned more about, about Jesus, as, as I learned more about my own faith, as I learned more about the values that, uh, just kind of define being um, a good human being uh, in in the context of serving others. Uh, it just helped me have more belief in myself. Um, helped me come to terms with the fact that I can fail and that's okay. Uh, helped me know that you know work is not who I am. Uh, work is a very, I mean, it's a significant part, but not the complete part of who I am. And uh, once I started looking at myself differently, you know, thanks to uh, learning more about Jesus, it just helped me uh, get more, be more at peace with myself and my own ambitions, I will say. And that, you know, that has just helped me uh, be a lot more, uh, I will say, forgiving, a lot more gracious towards <laughs> where I want to go and, and, and how I want to craft my life in a way and, and whatever way that looks like. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, uh, and again, I'm not saying I'm like every single day, it's all perfect, like, you know, roses and, and unicorns, but, uh, it's, it's, it helps me keep, uh, my compass straight, uh, for lack of a better way of saying it. Yeah. I love that answer. It's definitely a different answer. I remember we were chatting a little bit before 
you were like, you know, this is going to be different than than most folks. It's not going to be the the Elon Musk, Steve Jobs answer, <laughs> yeah. but it's the honest answer, and it's a really great one. And even if you're not um, religious or following a certain religion, I think spirituality in general, a lot of lessons to learn. I personally have been reading a lot about different cultures and spirit and, and religions, and I think that's it's really uh, fascinating. So. Uh, Brian, thank you so much. You've been really gracious with your time. Um, we're going to be ending things shortly. Uh, before we do, how can our listeners follow your journey? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'm an avid networker. I love networking and just learning and connecting from uh, connecting with people and learning from people. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, LinkedIn is my, my thing. Uh, I try not to get too convoluted with too many platforms. So yeah, folks can, you know, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. We can touch base. Uh, and yeah, thanks for having me, Devin. It's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Well, thanks again, Brian. You take care. You too. Ciao. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you all enjoyed my conversation with Brian. As always, if you have any suggestions for the show or um, have any guests that you think I should have on, please email me. Uh, my email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you're looking for additional resources relating to product marketing, please visit fluviomarketing.com. Cheers.